नमस्कारम वेलकम बैक टू अ वेरी स्पेशल एडिशन ऑफ खूनी द क्राइम्स ऑफ इंडिया दिस इज ऑब्वियसली अदिति एंड जॉइनिंग मी ऑल द वे फ्रॉम हैदराबाद इज स्नेहा हाय स्नेहा हाय गाइस सो व्हाई इज दिस स्पेशल यू आस्क दिस एपिसोड इज पार्ट ऑफ आवर कोलैबोरेशन विद हैशटैग डीएनए फाइट्स रेप सेव द एविडेंस कैंपेन So the campaign was launched in November last year uh, it's led by Ogilvy and is supported by Delhi police and Aims in collaboration with UN women the campaign was launched to mark the international day for elimination of violence against women in 2019 the goal of the initiative is to raise awareness about the role of dna evidence in ensuring justice to victims of rape and to educate the general public about preserving offender dna like bodily fluids or skin nails hair etc from the crime from the scene of crime and also from the survivor because this is the most conclusive evidence that can lead to convictions in such cases aditi and i are so proud that khuni gets to be a part of this campaign we're going to discuss cases from india and also from abroad where the use of dna evidence has led to resolution of cases even when it seemed almost impossible to get a conviction and this will be an ongoing collaboration and we'll have at least one such case every month we will also interview experts both technical and legal to get a clearer picture of dna based criminal investigations in india so if you're not aware a woman gets raped every 15 minutes in india that's a very bleak statistic but it's true and if that woman is dalit or adivasi she is even more vulnerable to sexual assault and has a lower chance of getting justice if at all the latest conviction rate for sexual offences is only about 27.2% so not even 30% nope and while there are many institutional reasons for denial of justice in such cases one of them is lack of scientific approach to solving these cases by law enforcement even though india has developed some capacity for dna analysis we have not mainstreamed its use in sexual assault investigations to the extent required for a country of our size so the first thing any investigator will look at when starting their investigation into any crime is of course the crime scene in case of sexual assault survivors the crime scene extends to their body as well so it is absolutely crucial that there be protocols in place for collection and preservation of dna evidence from victims and that the victims medical professionals and even law enforcement agencies are all aware and trained in this protocol and this is what the campaign aims to achieve on this note do we have a system in india uh so sort of So the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare has issued guidelines for doctors and other medico-legal professionals for collecting, preserving and documenting forensic evidence from sexual assault survivors. Ah, uh, I think the operative word here is quote-unquote guidelines. Guidelines are not legally enforceable. So actually how many states have in reality implemented these guidelines? we don't have to look beyond hathras to see that these guidelines were not closely followed by the doctors who attended the victim yeah that's true we are also severely limited by infrastructure after hathras ministry of home affairs issued an advisory to all states and union territories on mandatory action needed in cases of crimes against women they mentioned basic steps like completing investigations within 2 months and uh, properly collecting sexual assault evidence kits etc none of these are new provisions but you know the implementation is still abysmal also just 
putting it out there for all our listeners, uh, both government and private hospitals are legally obliged to treat victims of sexual assault. Refusal to provide such care is a cognizable offence which can attract both imprisonment and fine. And God forbid, I hope this tragedy never happens to anybody who listens to us or anybody you know, but it is important for our listeners to remember nevertheless. So, do we have a system of rape kits? You mentioned sexual assault evidence kits. Yeah, we do. But I tried to look up exactly how many rape kits are in use on ground. So first of all, there are, there are no clear figures available state-wise. And secondly, the Ministry of Home Affairs Advisory that I mentioned earlier states that at least as of 5th October 2020, about 11,130 kits had been distributed for use in the field by the ministry. Wait, this is in total, like all states and UTs combined? Yes. Great. Just great. This episode has become very bleak and we haven't even got into our story yet. Yeah, speaking of story, uh, let's just dive into it. So today we are going to tell you the heartbreaking story of Gudia and how genealogical testing of DNA was used to make sure that her family got justice. Gudia lived in Kotkhai in Himachal Pradesh with her six siblings and parents. At 16, she was the second youngest member in the family. Gudia's parents were people of meagre means. There was a small patch of land in the family, but her father had to work on apple orchards to earn enough money. But lack of money never stopped him from making sure that his daughter got an education. Gudia and her brother attended the government senior secondary school in Mahasu, which was a little further away from their home. Going to school was not an easy task for her. Her school was a five-kilometer trek along a very kacha road winding along slopes of Deodar forests. It took almost an hour each way, but she and her brother took that route every day nevertheless and still attended school. Gudia was in class 10th, which was a very crucial year for students Mm -hmm. all over the country, obviously. During July of 2017, her school was hosting some sporting event, Her brother was participating, but she wasn't. So on 4th July, since her brother was busy, Gudia left school to walk home alone. She had left a little late. She had hung back after school got over to watch a Coco match. Uh, She then spent some time with her friends. It seemed like the kind of laid-back environment schools usually have around sports days. right? And she then started the long walk back home along the same kacha track that she took every day. This was the last time anyone would ever see her alive. Gudia never came back home. Her family searched for her frantically before lodging a missing persons complaint with the police. There were no signs of her for almost two days. And then, on the morning of 6th July 2017, Gudia's remains were found in the Halaila forest. It was a harrowing sight. Gudia was naked but her uniform was found close by. Initial reports suggested that there were alcohol bottles around where she was found. Everyone was stunned. Crimes like these were almost unheard of in this area. Public anger spilled onto the streets as thousands gathered for protests. The case became sensitive immediately. The crime scene was sealed off as forensic experts and dog squads conducted their investigation. According to the postmortem report, the cause of death was, quote, homicidal smothering and manual strangulation in a case of recent forcible penetrative sexual assault, unquote. Basically, she'd been raped and strangled. 
This was a brutal and heinous crime and like Aditi mentioned earlier, there was substantial public anger. The police acted quickly and created a special investigation team for the case headed by IPS officer Zahur Haider Zaidi. Now Zaidi was a decorated and accomplished police officer at the point. He served as a commander in the UN peacekeeping mission in Kosovo in 2005-2006 and was awarded a UN medal for its for his service. He had also written books and produced a documentary for school children aimed at increasing awareness about human rights and Zaidi acted fairly quickly. Merely a week after the incident on 13th July 2017 the SIT had arrested six men in connection with the crime. Almost 9 days after the incident six persons were arrested. Two of them were local Himachalis, two were from Uttarakhand and two from Nepal. According to police this group of six had been living in Kotkai for a long time and were familiar with the area their main accused was Raju who was a pickup driver Raju and Gudia knew each other and he would sometimes drop her off in his vehicle the theory was that on the day of her disappearance Raju had once again offered her a lift and Gudia had accepted this time he was accompanied by the five other people as well they had been drinking They took her to an isolated spot where they raped and murdered her. Her body had been discovered at this spot itself. This was essentially a crime of opportunity. They had not planned it in advance. At this time, the police claimed to have had all the evidence they needed. They said that they had relied on intelligence inputs, bite marks and DNA evidence and and call details of the accused. The police also claimed that the accused had confessed in custody. So it seemed like a watertight case and mercifully justice seemed to have been speedily delivered. But only 5 days after the arrest of the accused, the investigation was marred by another death. Suraj, who was from Nepal and who was one of the people arrested in the crime, was found dead while in custody. The police's explanation was that a fight had broken out between Suraj and the main accused Raju on the night of 18th July which resulted in Suraj's death. Wow, they really expected people to believe this, right? Yeah, and spoiler alert, people did not believe this at all. How do all policemen become pulp fiction writers, man, when it comes to custodial deaths and encounters? This is not our first time we've seen something like this. And some of these stories are just mind blowing. A question I ask myself a lot. Anyway, so uh, with the death of one of the accused, public anger erupted once more as the police investigation was called into question. Peaceful protests turned violent immediately as mobs gathered outside the Kotkai police station and torched it. They also vandalized many police vehicles, and many policemen were injured as well. At this point, even Guria's family were saying that while they were desperate for justice for their girl, they did not want innocence to be blamed for the crime. So now the situation had changed dramatically on the ground. People had lost faith in the investigation being conducted by the police. Following Suraj's custodial death, the entire staff of the Kotkai police station was suspended. And on 22nd July 2017, on orders of the Himachal Pradesh High Court, the case was transferred to the CBI. So CBI had two tasks on its uh, on its hand when it stepped in. One was definitely solving Guria's case, but additionally they were also assigned the custodial death case of Suraj as well. 
In August 2017, eight police officers, including Zaidi, were arrested for their role in the death. Meanwhile, the investigation into Guria's case was taking a new turn altogether. The CBI decided not to rely on the investigation that was conducted by the local police, and instead launched their own investigation from scratch. So, if you remember earlier that we've mentioned that an alcohol bottle was recovered from the place mm-hmm. where Guria's remains were found. So CBI began their investigation from there. They approached local liquor shops to find out more about possible customers who may have bought alcohol around the same time as the incident. There was this was a massive exercise and over 1000 people were interviewed and 400 statements were taken. So the CBI also tested Guria's vaginal discharge and found traces of semen. Okay so if you remember your basic biology from school you would know that female sex chromosome is xx and the male chromosome is xy so in this particular case since the semen could not be separated from the vaginal discharge forensics expert isolated the y chromosome from the sample then this was analyzed and a dna profile was generated then the cbi narrowed their list to about 250 people who were regulars in the area where the girl was found but unfortunately they didn't even get a partial match with any of these people and they all had to be exonerated so at this point cbi had exhausted all their regular means of dna identification yeah so this is when they had to get creative and they resorted to something called lineage testing or genealogical testing the dna profile they generated helped to determine the person's ethnicity traits clan and age and using this information dna experts were able to pinpoint the clan and therefore the location of the possible rapist a family in kangra was identified as possible relatives of the sub- suspect so when they knew the location they concentrated their efforts to this particular village and conducted a fresh round of dna sampling and testing for both paternal and maternal lineage of the clan all their efforts pointed them in the direction of 25-year-old Anil Kumar. DNA samples taken from his parents matched the crime scene DNA. His relatives and close contacts were immediately subjected to surveillance by the CBI. All incoming calls were tracked. Anil used to call his relatives from different borrowed phones. One of these calls was eventually traced and CBI managed to catch him eventually. Anil was following the coverage of the case in the media. He had definitely been on the run for a whole year. He frequently changed jobs, stopped communication with his family, and even avoided any public transport to avoid detection. CBI investigation almost took 9 months. So, Gudia's case is still subjudice, but there is an important development. During the initial phase of the investigation when the matter was with Himachal police the five people who had been arrested and were subjected to nar- narco analysis polygraph test and BEOS test the experts who conducted these recorded their statements in Suraj's custodial death investigation now according to these experts their tests revealed that more than one person was possibly involved in Gudia's death This is very different from what the CBI is saying. They are sure that they have arrested the sole perpetrator. But most importantly, nobody has discredited CBI's methodology. So while Anil Kumar's involvement is still certain, the prosecution has not been able to establish whether anyone else was involved. 
So that's where the case stands as of now. We can make a case for DNA database for sex offenders here, I think. In US, they all they would have run it through their system to see if it matches anyone who's already in the system. But you cannot do that in India. Although on the other hand, I will say after our experience with Aadhaar and NRC, any kind of biometric database of citizens sort of like puts me at a weird, uneasy place. Yeah, for sure. But we also have to understand the contingencies of criminal investigation, right? Mm-hmm. So Anil Kumar was a repeat offender and if his information had been present in any state or central database the investigation could have proceeded at a faster pace uh, he could have been arrested fairly quickly and don't forget an innocent man died right, while right. in wrongful custody so that could have been prevented as well so we do need a criminal database i think but there have to be very strong ironclad safeguards against uh misused by the state and if we have such strong safeguards i'm sure we can instill confidence of the public in such a database as well true true also it's worth men- noting here that the six people who had been arrested by the police earlier were completely exonerated by the cbi tragically suraj died in vain the custodial death case is also sub judice right now and like we said earlier nine police officers including zaidi are in custody right now zaidi i think has been granted bail and reinstated also but then there were allegations that he was trying to intimidate witnesses so bail was rejected again so this case has been shifted to chandigarh as of now so this case is notable because this is the first time lineage testing or genealogical dna testing has been used in india for solving a crime Recently this technique was used to capture the golden state killer in the US. Now, we don't usually cover non-Indian cases <laughs> on this podcast, but uh it is relevant to the discussion at hand, so we'll just quickly go over the details of the golden state killer case. So, his real name is Joseph D'Angelo and he was active between 1973 and 1986 in California. He initially began his long criminal career as a burglar, which eventually escalated to rape. His rape spree began in Sacramento in California where he was called the East Area Rapist for a while. He would stalk his potential victims for a while before breaking into their homes and raping them. Initially he preferred single women or single mothers and then he moved on to targeting couples as well. He would separate the husband and the wife, he would threaten them at gunpoint and then tie up the woman and rape her. He would also, you know, he would take his time and ransack their house. Slowly he escalated from rape to rape and murder of his victims so i am really simplifying the crimes of this man but the relevant part is that he had become a cold case for decades before investigators resorted to genealogical testing to nab uh, him eventually they used a website called ged match which is basically like an open source database for dna information from different testing companies So like by testing companies we mean services like 23 and me basically you can send them a sample of your dna and they analyze it to tell you information about yourself including your ancestry i think right now we have a couple of these sites in india as well so yeah you can know which part of the world your ancestors are from what your ethnicity in so yeah but it's very it's not very common in india but there are a lot of sites in the us 
anyway so investigators in the case managed to link the dna found on the crime scenes with dna of very distant relatives found on the website they built multiple family trees eliminated people based on sex age and other factors and eventually zeroed in on d'angelo it is a very interesting case which is we actually suggest reading a book called i'll be gone in the dark by michelle mcnamara and there is also a documentary and a companion podcast by hbo with the same name as well la times also has a wonderful podcast called the man in the window it gave me nightmares for days so just be careful i guess when you're listening we'll link all of these in our show notes so you can have a look and so we brought up the uh, golden state killer case because of the well known use of genealogical testing i think if you are even a little bit tuned into the true true crime world you'd have heard about it by now but now let's talk about another foreign case this time from italy that is somewhat lesser known but is eerily similar to gudias the yara gamberasio motto so yara was a 13 year old girl who lived with a family in the town of brembate di sopra nestled in the italian alps which has a population of about 8000 people a lot like gudia who also came from a small town of kotkhain in the himalayas yeah yeah i told you the similarities are eerie and like mm-hmm. gudia she also came yeah. from a big family she had an older sister and two younger brothers her father was an architect and her mother was a teacher the family was very well respected in town anyway so on 26th november 2010 a uh, friday yara left her home at about 5:15 pm to go to the local gym the gym was only about 100 meters away from her place and she was just running an errand she was expected back very quickly but then yara didn't come back by 7 and her parents grew worried and called her cell phone they got no answer at about 7:30 her father finally notified the police the law enforcement response was thankfully very quick with both the state police and the carabinieri arriving very soon FII the carabinieri are military police in Italy who also have law enforcement duties among the public so during the investigation the gym instructor told the police that she had seen yara and they had done some light training till about 6 pm and yara's cell phone records showed that the last message she sent out was at around 6:44 pm to a friend to make plans on the sunday so this is just about 15 minutes before she stops responding right yeah about 15 20 minutes roughly a few people told the police that they had seen yara talking to two men but at the time it seems like this information was very vague the police also utilized sniffer dogs the dogs picked up her scent but led in a direction away from her home to a place called mapello and uh, cell phone records showed that this was where her phone had pinged last there was no trace of yara for the next 3 months but the case exploded in italy media descended on the small town and they watched her parents like hawks the family was under constant scrutiny from the police as well wait what made them suspect the family i think it was just procedure you know yeah 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 oh yeah correct you eliminate all possible suspects first and obviously family would be the major starting point i guess yeah yeah exactly but the problem is that even though the police were only trying to do their jobs everyone especially the media latched on to this idea of the family being guilty of hiding something they were constantly camping outside their home 
So the Gambirasio family became very reclusive. They didn't talk to the journalists very much and mostly stayed indoors. They made one public appeal for information regarding Yara, but they looked very awkward. And many people took it as an indication of guilt or at least that they were concealing something. So uh, wiretapping phones was one of the early ways the police were investigating this case, especially looking at phones that were pinging in Mapello at a time when Yara's phone uh, was in the area as well. Of the 15,000 phones tapped, the one that stuck out the most was that of Mohammed Fikri. Fikri was a Moroccan citizen. Apparently, he had been caught saying, quote, Allah, forgive me, I did not kill her, unquote. By the time the Italian police decided to arrest Fikri, he had already left Italy and was on a boat to Tangiers. But they managed to intercept him and they brought him back. He was arrested and he was kept in custody for three days. When the police searched his van, they found a blood-soaked mattress. Was the blood Yara's? Nope. And in fact, it was not connected to the case at all. So apart from his phone pinging in Mapello, what else did they have on him? Nothing else. The case against him was extremely flimsy. He also had a good reason to be in Mapello because he was a construction worker who was working on a site there. Plus, he had an alibi for the day Yara was murdered. Oh no, they must have crucified him in the media though. Yeah, and by the general public as well. There was a very strong undercurrent of xenophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment. Either way, he was released after three days in custody. But the most awful part is that, you know, this thing he supposedly said about quote-unquote not killing, it was all just mistranslation. Multiple other translators later heard the phrase, originally in Arabic, one said that when translated in context, it was just a rhetorical statement. because So the conversation he was having was about this person. He was trying to get in touch with them. They owed him money and they were not responding. So he was basically just venting, you know, like, I'll kill him. Just like in a rhetorical way. Oh. Yeah, and two other translators said that Fikri hadn't even said the word kill, like at all. I mean, either way, he was not confessing or even remotely alluding to Yara when he said what he said. Uh, Fikri later successfully sued the government for damages. So, framing an innocent man. This is another thing in common with Kodiya's case. Yeah, absolutely. So, actually, the problem is uh, that this whole while Yara was missing. They didn't have much to go on. So, they were basically grasping at straws and exploring whatever avenue was available to them. And so far, their only leads were the Gambirasio family themselves and all these suspicious wiretaps. But all that was about to change. Yes, Yara's remains were finally discovered on 26th February 2011, three months after her disappearance, in a town 10 kilometers away from Brembate di Sopra. Yara was in an advanced stage of decomposition, but her clothes were recognizable. She also had her keys, SIM card and phone battery on her. Her autopsy revealed that she had been attacked with a sharp instrument multiple times. There was no indication of sexual assault, but her bra was undone. Most importantly though, in what proved to be a major breakthrough, the police found DNA from an unknown male on her underwear. This was labelled Ignoto 1 or Unknown 1. Now, unfortunately, the sample did not match anyone who was already on the police database. The police then turned their attention to where Yara was found. There was a club nearby called Sabi Mobili, which had a reputation for violence. 
This was one of the focal points for the invest- investigators. Over the next few weeks, they collected DNA samples of the patrons and one of these samples turned out to be a partial match with Ignoto 1. This sample came from Damiano Gerinoni. So Damiano was not complete match to the sample and he had an alibi for the day Yara disappeared. So he was immediately ruled out. But since there was a partial match, the forensic experts realized that he was probably related to Ignoto 1. And this is where the genealogical testing comes in. The police started building a detailed family tree of Damiano's relatives. So in a very crazy twist, it turned out that Damiano's mother used to actually work for the Gambirasio family when Yara was younger. She was with them for almost 10 years. So obviously you can see how this would raise multiple red flags in the investigation. How crazy is this though? Yeah. They randomly test Damiano and his mother has such a close connection with Yara. Wow. Exactly. And it derailed the investigation for a bit because now they had to look into this. So Damiano and his mother were put under surveillance. Their phones were tapped and they were followed around by the cops everywhere. You know, they were also interrogated. But in the end, it just turned out to be a massive coincidence. That's all. So weird though. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so while looking at Damiano, the police realized that the roots of his family lay in this very remote village up in the mountains called Gorno. His extended family here was also subjected to DNA profiling. While doing so, they zeroed in on Damiano's uncle's family. The uncle's name was Giuseppe. Giuseppe himself had passed away in 1999, but his DNA was available for testing. Oh, and this is so cool. But the DNA sample from Giuseppe, it came from two stamps that he had licked to stick to the documents while he had been alive. So even after so many years, the sample was still viable for testing. Wow. So once they tested the sample, they realized that Giuseppe was definitely the father of Ignoto 1. The problem, however, was that when Giuseppe's son's DNA was tested, neither were a match for Ignoto 1. Which leaves us with only one explanation. Oh, Giuseppe, you were a naughty old man, weren't you? Yes, very naughty. (laughs) Obviously, the DNA belonged to an illegitimate son who now had to be located. And again, this was not an easy task. We are talking about a very traditional Catholic society here. Right, so this doesn't mean that no shenanigans would go on. This just means that shenanigans were usually swept under the carpet. See more parallels with our country. Yeah, yeah, totally. So it would have been a massive, massive task to track down this woman who had an affair with Giuseppe. So the police created a detailed behavioral profile of Giuseppe. They realized that during the late 60s and 70s, he had been a bus driver. His old friends and colleagues were tracked down and questioned. They revealed that he had in fact talked about getting a young woman in trouble once a long time ago. And it was from one of these sources that the police discovered the woman who might be the mother of Ignoto 1, a woman by the name of Esther Arzufi. Esther and Giuseppe had been neighbours. They both had an extramarital affair and Esther had become pregnant. The result of this pregnancy was Massimo Giuseppe Bossetti, a construction worker. When Massimo's DNA was tested, 
it completely matched ignoto 1 so finally on 16th june 2014 four years after yara's death her murderer was arrested when masamo was investigated there was a lot of circumstantial evidence to connect him to yara besides the dna match his internet search history showed that he had a disturbing predilection for pubescent girls he had been present near yara's home on the night of the murder he used to park his car behind her gym and his phone had pinged in brimbatadi sopra on the evening of yara's disappearance but had remained switched off between 5:45 pm on the day she disappeared till 7:43 am the next morning so masimo has been convicted for the murder of yara gambirasio but it would be unfair to not mention some of the issues that emerged in this case and let's start with masimo's defense itself He claimed that he used to get frequent nosebleeds and it was possible that some of that blood got transferred to his tools one of which could have been used to kill Yara. Remember Yara had been attacked with a sharp instrument. Wait, wasn't the DNA sample recovered from her underwear? Yeah, yeah, it was. I'm not see I'm not believing or disbelieving Massimo's claim. I'm just pointing mm-hmm. out that it is a fact that Massimo is a match to Ignoto 1 and it is a fact that Ignoto 1 DNA was found from Yara's underwear, but how the DNA got there is a point of contention. Presence of DNA alone cannot be an absolute indicator of the crime, you know. Not I'm not talking about Yara's case because here of course there is a very high chance but in general from a legal perspective we should not rely on dna alone yeah yeah makes sense there are so many instances of people getting convicted on the basis of touch dna even though they had nothing to do with the crime exactly so another issue that emerged in this case was that of data privacy the police in italy claimed that they had consent from everyone they took dna samples from so there was no there were no legal issues but the media leaked a lot of information to the public that should have remained private for instance all of giuseppe's affairs were revealed even though esther swore in public that she had never had an affair someone leaked that even her other children were illegitimate i can't imagine okay i can't even begin to imagine the havoc that this must have unleashed over the families involved it is a fact that sensitive personal dna information was made public even in the indian context if we are talking of uh, mainstreaming dna into a crim- into criminal investigations or and creating a dna database for repeat offenders we have to be mindful about how we collect store and protect that information there have to be strong safeguards So all these cases show the possibilities of lineage testing in not just solving crimes but also minimizing wrongful convictions. If you look at Gudia's case, all six accused initially arrested by the local police were in fact given a clean chit. So this is an open field for now, especially in India. There aren't a lot of concrete guidelines on its use in criminal investigations. Plus, there are very real and valid ethical and privacy concerns on the use of this method to identify suspects. But it offers some hope in a country where sexual assault is rampant and conviction rate is abysmally low. So we hope that this episode demystified genealogical DNA testing a little bit and shed some light on the importance of DNA-based evidence and how important it is to preserve it. 
this is not our regular episode but we will be back with season 2 in january so we'll see you all very soon yes we will and in the meantime do us a favor and please follow our campaign on social media we will link everything in our show notes and on our socials we promise you you will learn so much stay safe and stay sane have a wonderful christmas and a very happy new year bye bye bye